The title of tonight's talk is Anything's Possible. It's about how when we sit in the place of trust, when we sit in the place of unknowing, when we sit in the great mystery of life, anything is possible. The title itself came out of a small incident that I had on my last retreat. And as we're probably quite familiar with, small incidents sometimes leave big impressions. So on this retreat, which was a self-retreat, I had to cook for myself. I remember when I was registering for the retreat, saying to the retreat manager, this is the most daunting aspect of the retreat. (laughs) I've been very fortunate in my life and living in community that I haven't done a lot of cooking. (laughs) So it was a big deal for me. (laughs) So the food that I cooked was very basic. The food that I had was very calculated. I knew that I could have one cookie each day and one piece of chocolate. If I had any more, then I would have to do without on another day. So as I would sit, (laughs) there would be the occasional food fantasy come along. (laughs) On its arising, it would be followed by the thought, what do you think, it's going to magically appear in front of you? And in knowing that desire is a long road of unsatisfactoriness, I would simply abandon it. Then it happened one day that um, I went to pick up my winter coat, which I had only worn a couple of times since the previous winter. As I went to pick up this jacket, I felt it, and it was very unjacket-like feeling. And so on closer investigation, I discovered that in the top pocket was the ultimate protein bar. (laughs) This seemed like a lot. (laughs) It seemed like a miracle. (laughs) And at the same time, it was followed by this thought, anything's possible. And then what happened, in having that thought, anything's possible, there was a moment of touching that openness, that availability. When we put down all the ideas of how we think things are, and just simply greet life, meet whatever comes. Looking to that experience, it was seen that what made that possible, what made it possible to let down all of those ideas, concepts, constructions, was the quality of trust. And trust plays a crucial part in the unfolding of our hearts and minds. Because without trust, we will never let go. We will never be able to step from the known into the unknown. We will never be able to sit in the silence of our own hearts and minds. The word trust itself means to rely on without fear of misgiving. One of the very misguided habits in life is that we try to rely on that which feels solid, that which is rational, and can be scientifically proven. The trust that we need to move into unknown territory is not something that someone can teach us. It is not graspable. And yet, it is known with great certainty experience. Trusting is a deep state of ease.
without trust, we're caught up in the conceptual world. We're trying to get a handle on things, trying to make ourselves feel more secure, more at home, more comforted, because we think we know the way things are. We get caught in the endless cycle of trying to make things perfect. And the world starts to become a great weight, a great burden. And yet we act as if this weight, this burden, is our refuge. And what we find is that it's a refuge that is totally unreliable. As you're probably all very aware, practice begins to shake the foundations of our conceptual world, of how we think life is. When we first experience these foundations rocking and shaking, it's very disconcerting. It's possible we feel fear at that time. We know that we have not been happy, satisfied, that we have been in suffering, and yet that is familiar to us. We've somehow learned to make ourselves comfortable by thinking that we know. Then we find that we're forced to let go of all of these ideas. It may at first seem scary, and yet this is the only way that we can find true refuge. It's only trust, or in the broader sense, faith, that makes this possible. We find that there comes a deep letting go of this conceptual world, the way we think things are. And it has a sense of falling back on ourselves. Not a sense of the falling back on ourselves as belonging to us, but it's a falling back or resting on that which is true, that which is reliable, and at the same time, that which is ungraspable. Sometimes it might feel like learning to be at ease in a deep freefall. We're simply resting in the way things are. A lot of the ways that we construct our reality, the conceptual world, is based upon wanting to be at ease, wanting to be at peace, but needing to see that the conceptual world is as empty as anything else, that it too is unreliable. Many of us come to this realization in life when we have tried everything. We may have been married, had children, had a good career, built a beautiful house. And one day we discover that we aren't happy, that we aren't at peace, that we aren't at ease. It can be that moment of despair, And it can also be a moment when we listen, we become receptive, we start thinking we know what to do. And we open ourselves up to seeing things just as they are. Of course, the habit to seek fulfillment outside of ourselves is very deeply ingrained. It's a habit that even when we know it's futile, 
we will keep seeing ourselves moving towards over and over again. We find it in our practice when we start seeking fulfillment through our meditative experiences. Needing to recognize when we sit down and we're looking for the experience that will bring us that great fulfillment. We can start seeing these habits as habits, stop being so involved in the content, and simply see them as dhammas, see them as the changing experience of life. If we make it our practice to keep letting go of our conceptual frameworks, not trying to make it into a new view of reality, and simply keep opening with a freshness of heart to the changing experiences of life, we will at some point hit that which is reliable, that which is trustworthy, that which is not subject to decay. And in doing so, we relinquish our fear, anxiety, hope, and expectations. It's not that we blindly abandon ourselves and say, oh, if I just keep letting go, everything will be all right. This is not an example of trust at all. Instead, through the continuity of our practice, we see the futility of trying to hang on to anything and deeply let go into an inner trust and confidence. In our practice, we sometimes carry conceptual ideas in having heard the teachings, having heard the words of the Buddha, having heard someone who inspired us. And at times, take these concepts and cut ourselves off from direct experience. It could be in the the state where something pleasant is happening. Rather than opening to this pleasant experience, we think, Oh, it's just impermanence. It'll go away. This too will pass. And we brush it off. Or we distance ourselves from the experience. It has the element of disconnection. We're not meeting the experience with the true wisdom of understanding impermanence, which allows us to be with the experience without grasping or trying to hang on to it we then are cutting ourselves off from this direct realization. Another way that we might do this is when we've had a direct experience of impermanence, which lasted for a moment. And then everything else that happens, we try to overlay this experience. We try to see it through that lens rather than experiencing it freshly, new. The power of the practice comes in having many moments of insight. Each moment of insight helps to uproot the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. Another concept we often have in practice is that the path is linear. We often imagine that as we progress along the path, things will become clearer and clearer, and there'll be less suffering, and that this will be a natural progression that has no variations. It may be that we have an insight around desire. And maybe it was a form of desire that has been plaguing us for a very long time. 
And we have this moment where we see it in a new light. We see it very clearly. We're not bound by it. And it brings a great confidence. It brings happiness. And then we continue on in our practice. And a while later, the same desire comes back. And suddenly, it's like, oh, how can this be? I must be doing it wrong. I thought I was finished with this. Or we, we can start to doubt the teachings, that this doesn't really work. Look, the same form of desire is here. But the path isn't linear, at least in my experience. <laughs> and it's so unique for all of us. You know, that, that we really have to drop the ideas about how things should be and really trust in the, our own journey, the way it's unfolding for us. You know, each time that this same desire comes by, we could see it new again and again. And each time it will help to up, uproot the force of desire in our minds. So concepts or views or beliefs about the way things are, they keep us from experiencing trust, needing to learn to identify these filters when they're present, moving into a direct experience with life. Another way that we lose trust and confidence is when we identify with our hopes and fears. These hopes and fears are experienced as agitation in the mind, and they're contrary to the deep relaxation of trust. They keep us in the push and pull of life. They keep us moving towards and away from experience. When we have hope, there is some expectation, something to attain, something to become. We may have many goals for the future. One day we will have this and that. One day we will have it all, total and complete fulfillment. And so much of our lives get caught up in this hope. And with hope, we are never accepting of the way things are right now. Through hope, we reduce this moment to a commodity, a means to an end. Something that, if we live through, we will get something better in the future. So hope has this way of robbing us of this moment. It can leave us with the feeling that the present isn't good enough. It needs modification, and then things will be all right. How many times in our life do we simply try to get through this moment to get to something better in front of us? We can just see it in simple ways of walking to get somewhere, where our mind has jumped ahead to where we're going and we're not settled back, resting in the moment. We might see it here on retreat in our yogi jobs, where we want to hurry through our yogi job so we can get to the next sitting, where there's more of a promise. It's so much a common pattern in our lives. Now, how many times do we not pay attention as we wash the dishes, as we vacuum, as we fold our clothes, thinking that there's something better ahead, and forgetting that freedom, liberation, is only possible here and now.
Sometimes as we sit down on the cushion, we might bring the attention to the breath. We find it steady. We find it's easy to connect with the breath. And then comes along the thought, ooh, this is going to be a really good meditation. Right there with that thought, we can see the agitation that happens in the mind with hope, that there's a stirring, that we've moved from the place of receptivity to a leaning into the experience, to a grasping at the experience in the hope of something better. Working with hope is much like working with desire. Working with hope, we need to stop looking at the enchantment of it and instead turn around and look at the place of unsatisfactoriness from which it arises. Looking into the true nature of this experience rather than being blinded by the bright lights. Sometimes the hope will be very blatant in the practice. You know, that we'll really know the quality of leaning in or the agitation in the mind. Other times it might be quite subtle, harder to see. I've noticed in my own practice that when things, uh, the clinging of the mind is quite subtle, that I can sometimes see it when I might just drop in a phrase. One of the phrases that has worked quite well for me is to drop in the phrase, this is it. Dropping in the phrase, this is it. Sometimes there might not be a murmur with that. It's as if the phrase drops into the still forest pool. Other times, it might be, this is it. (laughs) And at other times, it might be, no way, (laughs) this can't be it. (laughs) It just starts to reveal where there might be clinging or attachment. This is part of a poem by Wendell Berry. In the ancient faith, What we need is here, and we pray, not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What we need is here. This is where trust takes us. What we need is here. It seems so hard for us to believe, and so we just go, chasing after these rainbows, looking for that pot of gold. But trust helps us to recognize this, to see for ourselves that what we need is here. There is a tricky part around hope, because If we didn't have some sense of possibility, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be doing this practice. But there has been in us some form of inner resonance that hears that there is a way out of suffering and believes it to be true. Both Sharon and Steve recently have mentioned aspirations. And In speaking about aspirations, they've encouraged us not to be meager, but to allow our aspirations to be really big, to include all living beings. May we be liberated for the benefit of all beings everywhere. We can hear this and think, well, (laughs) is that a hope? You know, what's the difference here between hope and aspiration? 
What's the difference between hope and the desire for liberation? What I'm about to say comes from my felt sense of the difference. So if it in any way is confusing, I apologize. But for me, there seems to be quite a distinction. The desire for liberation, the urge for liberation, is said to be a wholesome factor, which seems puzzling if hope is unwholesome, not helpful. So looking at what hope is, with hope we are wanting something other than what is. There is with hope a sense of becoming, hope that we will become, a hope that is self-referencing. There is one to become enlightened. It's based upon basic wrong view of there being a solid, separate self that needs to be perfected, that needs to be fixed, and that will ultimately become a wonderful person. The desire for liberation is, to me, a movement of the heart that comes from an inner resonance. The desire for liberation, rather than spilling us out into becoming, actually helps to guide us back to this moment, back into presence. It has a way of protecting us from moving into becoming when we can recognize that liberation is here and now, that it is only possible in the present. The desire for liberation helps to give us a bigger framework to be with our experience. It helps to give some context to times of difficulty. So the desire for liberation, a vital force, an energy that can keep directing us back to find that which is trustworthy. It always seems a dicey edge between these two, where when we have this wholesome energy of the desire for liberation and then step into hoping, step into becoming. Suzuki Roshi has quite a wonderful saying where he says, there are no enlightened beings, only enlightened moments. Seeing the difference between hope as being self-referencing and the desire for liberation is non-self-referencing. It is the desire to simply see things just as they are. And this is where it's helpful when we have the motivation to be liberated for the benefit of all beings everywhere, it helps to take the self right out of it. It is no longer this little self-absorbed practice of all my little concerns, but makes 
what we're doing here big, huge. It makes our life an offering to be for the highest good on the deepest level. So hope is one aspect of experience that agitates the mind and keeps us from relaxing into being. The flip side of hope is fear. It's where we're shrinking back from life, pulling away. Fear is prevalent in the world around us when we act out of fear and do harmful things. It's also something that stops many of us, that keeps us from honoring our nobility of heart. We become afraid of the fear of failure. I remember this very clearly as a small child. Undertaking a new task, the fear of failure could be so strong, the fear that maybe I couldn't do this. If I couldn't do it, I might fall into states of shame, unworthiness. And this fear becoming so strong that it felt better not to attempt, not to try, because I might fail. And therefore, staying bound, limited, and constricted. An interesting observation about fear is that fear is so often a projection into the future. Fear about what might become rather than what is. We take an unpleasant experience and we project it. We imagine it in all kinds of circumstances, all of the terrible things that might happen. And it's simply a phantom in our mind. In moments of fear, it's as if we abandon the ship and hand the controls over to our imaginations. Michael Pritchard said about fear, fear is like a little dark room where negatives are developed. Fear comes in many forms and has at many degrees of intensity. It can be anything from terror to anxiety to dread to a subtle sense of uneasiness or unsettledness. Working with fear can be as simple as taking an interest in what is happening, shining the light of awareness on it. I love the title of Pema Chodron's new book, It's called The Places That Scare You, A Guide to Fearlessness in Difficult Times. And our practice helps to give us the tools to touch these places that scare us, these places that run our lives. And fear seems unavoidable when we touch into new territory or discover the vulnerability of life. We only need to recognize it, to bear witness to it. It doesn't help us if we think we should never experience fear. But instead, standing steady with the fear. In working with fear, at many, ta- many times, we'll be able to go right into it, dive right into it. You know, it's that whoo, about face and just seeing what is it, what is it that frightens us so much. Other times the fear will be very strong. That's not possible. We can only touch the edges of it. We can simply be aware of its presence, know that it's present, know that it's there. Remembering, I think it was Sharon that talked about balance in the mind the other day, that at times when the fear is too strong, we may need to turn our attention momentarily elsewhere 
or for a period of time, but we still do this in the service of liberation. In working with fear, it's very important to notice the thoughts that feed the fear. Noticing the projection into the future. It helps to disarm the fear. It helps us to stay connected. It helps us to stop nourishing the fear. Often in our practice, in our lives, we will find ourselves flip-flopping between hope and fear needing to learn to recognize these states when they are present robs them of their power. When we stay mindful, we're no longer caught, identified. We're no longer believing what they are telling us. And we learn to trust in the power of awareness itself. And this is the place we can find refuge. I know so many people who have said that in times of immense difficulty in their life, they turned to their practice and had the sense that they never could have made it through without their practice. Another way that we lose our trust is through doubt. And doubt has the ability to totally cripple or paralyze our practice. Kamala the other night mentioned many of the different flavors of doubt. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. This isn't the right practice. These conditions aren't quite right. They're not supportive enough. I need a better teacher. Even I've seen sometimes the practice can be going very well, and suddenly we have the thought, Oh, but what if this practice isn't really right? I could do it forever, and nothing would happen. I'd never get anywhere. And so doubt arises, and we stop applying our attention. Our confidence becomes shattered, and we start start getting caught in discursive thinking about experience rather than opening to what is happening. Of the three personality types that Kamala mentioned the other night, that being the personality types of uh, the greedy one, the one, the aversive one, or the deluded one, I fall into the category of being one of the deluded ones. (laughs) I never knew this because (laughs) I was so deluded I couldn't figure out what I was. (laughs) Until one day I was listening to Sharon give a Dharma talk. And she talked about how when one is of the deluded temperament, that one easily loses confidence. And this was something I could totally relate to. I've seen over and over in my life when in one moment I feel really sure, certain about something, somebody walks up to me, says, no, that's not the way it is. And I'll go, oh, I must be wrong. (laughs) But I, I completely lose confidence. One day I discovered that actually someone doesn't even have to come along and this can happen. (laughs) It happened that uh, a friend of mine was going away and she lent me her car because mine wasn't running that well. So one morning I hopped in the car and I'm driving past IMS and I look up and there's a car that is the same as her car and it's the same size. And I see this car and I looked at it and I thought, Hmm, I was sure I took that car today. (laughs) And I have to stop here because I have many other deluded stories. But one time a friend said to me, you know, you should never tell those in a Dharma talk. (laughs) But anyhow, it makes me feel like I'm somewhat familiar with doubt and how it works and how it unnerves and... um, So fortunately, there's some good that comes from it at times. I had another experience of doubt only happened this year. Um, I was driving to Ware, a nearby town, and I'd been given instructions to go to somewhere I'd never been before. 
I went to this place. And then after I came out, I thought I knew a shortcut home. So I start driving. I think I need to go. And I went through an intersection which should hook me up to knowing where I was. Unfortunately, the light was green, so I didn't get a good look at the intersection, which probably wouldn't have helped me too much anyways, because being of deluded temperament, I tend to overlook the details of the world around me at times. But anyhow, I continued on driving down this road. And then I looked, and everything seemed unfamiliar. And doubt started to arise. And I was in a situation I needed to get where I was going pretty quickly. Doubt started to arise. Panic started to arise. You know, what should I do? Should I pull over? Should I go back? Should I, should I check this out? What should I do? And what I did was just kept connecting. I kept looking. And this is what is helpful to do with doubt. Stay in connection. Don't get caught in the discursive thinking about it. I mean, doubt is often um, in the text described as someone who's walking down a road and comes to a fork and doesn't know which way to go. So rather than trying out one direction and seeing where it leads, they simply stand paralyzed. So in that moment, I stayed connected. I kept looking. As I drove on, it was still quite mysterious, quite beautiful. And then suddenly, I know something was familiar. I knew where I was. And what I was struck by in that moment, by staying connected, I had seen things I had never seen before. And this is what can happen when we stay connected in the time of doubt. We turn the energy around. It helps us to see in a new way. Now, in those moments, as it was when I was driving, I was highly alert suddenly, really looking, really investigating. Cahil Gibran once said about doubt, Doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith is his twin brother. When I heard that quote, it reminded me of the doubt that says, I am no good, that I can't possibly do this. The doubt that says, I am unworthy. It's a doubt that lacerates. It's a doubt that is so heavy, so burdensome, so lonely. When we stop in those moments when that doubt arises and simply feel it, simply touch the feelings that arise with this thought, we can know this is suffering. Knowing that it is suffering, we can bring in compassion, care. Seeing that it is suffering, we can cease to nourishment, to nourish it. The Buddha talked, often talked about abandoning that which is unwholesome or leads to suffering. And so it's necessary for us to abandon these views of ourselves, the way we might constantly be putting ourselves down. These views may have been conditioned through other people in our lives. They may have been conditioned through views that we hold of ourselves. And they are conditioned through ignorance. By bringing the light of awareness, we can let go of these views. One easy way to detect when doubt is present is through the tone of the mind, the texture of the mind at that time. 
One friend recently described to me how he was on a retreat and there was just this sense that something was really wrong. He was going throughout the day just carrying this sense of something being wrong. And then suddenly he recognized it as doubt. Learning to recognize this voice. Not believing in what the doubt is telling us, but instead coming back into connection. Hamid Almas, a teacher who lives on the West Coast, um, who brings together a synthesis of Eastern philosophy and Western psychology, says, we don't trust that if we relax, we will have the capacities, we will have the intelligence, we will have the strength, and we will have the compassion that we need to deal with our lives. We don't trust that reality as it is is fundamentally fine and will work for us and support us without any interference on our part. Basic trust is learning that life is manageable, is workable, that we can relax into it and just let it be. It is that trust that the universe itself supports us and that we have the inner resources to deal with whatever life presents us. Basic trust means trusting enough to let your mind stop, to be silent within. Trust to let yourself be silent within. Knowing this, if there is something you need to know, the knowing will come. It means trusting that if you need to do something, you will be able to do it. It means accepting and trusting the silence, the stillness, the beingness, If we don't trust, we can't let our minds be silent and we can't let ourselves be still. What we find is a deep inner trust, a trust in our own resolve, a trust in the power of awareness, a trust that this is enough. Our practice helps us to strengthen our trust. Someone said to me the other day, I think I'm doing this practice all wrong, and yet it still seems to be working. I know when I first started doing this practice, I really thought I had to do the practice. And It was a lot of hard work. It was a lot of frustration and a lot of exhaustion. And then slowly, slowly, through continuing to do the practice or to turn up for the practice, which is what I discovered my part to be, that the practice was doing itself. The Dharma reveals itself. We don't have to create the Dharma. We don't have to conjure it up. Life reveals itself. We find a trust that allows us to surrender to this unfolding of the Dharma. We surrender to the lawfulness of life. We surrender to the way things are. The surrender not being the energy of collapsing resigning ourselves, but a deep acceptance. And when we surrender to the way things are, anything is possible. Clock is hard to read. (laughs)
A few years ago I went to Burma, and I temporarily ordained as a nun. It was for me something I really wanted to do. I was really interested to have an experience of being a nun living amongst other nuns, living with the daughters of the Buddha, and sharing in the wisdom of their lives, wanting to walk in the footsteps of my sisters. I wanted to see if there was anything in the lifestyle of a monastic that I could bring back and incorporate into my lay life that would help me. It was not a trip where I was going to do intensive practice, but to go and live a simple life. Having been to Burma before, I knew something of the conditions that were there and how they can be very trying at times. I also knew I wanted to go to an area where not a lot of English is spoken. But I figured that this would be okay, that you know, I would just be able to live side by side with the nuns and experience their lives in this way. I arrived in Burma and I ordained with my teacher. Ordaining itself was a very valuable and affirming experience. I had a sense of my inner and outer world of being in alignment. It was very powerful for me. And then after that, my teacher, Seda Ujanaka, sent me to a nunnery in Sagain Hills. And probably some of you who sat the first half have heard of Sagain Hills and uh, just how beautiful it is. For those of you who aren't familiar, Sagain Hills is um, a village or town that is situated on the Irrawaddy River, right beside the Irrawaddy River. It is a place that is largely made up of monastics and therefore has a lot of nunneries, monasteries, and all of the hilltops are topped with pagodas. It's breathtakingly beautiful. I'd been there a few years, a number of years before, and thought that it was one of the most sacred places on the earth. It's really a place where you feel like you step back in time, that you step back into the time of the Buddha. So in going there, it was meaningful to me. I felt like I was really living out a dream that I had had. It turned out to be a very powerful time for me. And as is often the case with very powerful times, it means it was also very uncomfortable, <laughs> very challenging, and seemingly very difficult. I traveled up there with a couple of friends who spoke Burmese, and they had come to help me settle into the nunnery. We went to the nunnery that my teacher had sent me to, which was one of the better learning nunneries up there. But the conditions for nuns can be quite difficult. And this place was very crowded, very dark, very dingy. I thought I would never see the light of day if I lived there. Um, and you know, after sp- spending only one day there, I went back to my room with my friends. And I was like, mm, <laughs> maybe I've bitten off more than I can chew. The, you know, one friend was Burmese, quite familiar with Burma. The other has lived there for a number of years as a nun. She's a Westerner, but she's lived there a number of years. And to my surprise, they were both in agreement, that they both thought that maybe it would be better if I didn't stay there. And what had happened is earlier that day, on our way to the nunnery, we had stopped in another place that was beautiful, that you know, looked out onto the hills that was quite spacious. And so we decided that I should go back to that nunnery. I went back, went there, and my friends left me then. And when they left, my world changed. Things got really hard. 
You know, I wanted to live as a nun amongst nuns. But for different reasons, this wasn't so easy. The language was a barrier. You know, I could, all day long I heard people relating around me. And yet, you know, I could hardly say anything to them. I think that this is a time, about the only place where I can feel really lonely is when I'm with people and feel so separate. So loneliness came up very strong. They also didn't want me to work with them. They didn't want me to chop vegetables with them. Not because they didn't want me there, but because they didn't want my fingers to become smelly. They also didn't want me to sit on the floor with them and eat. Now, so much of what they were doing for me was coming from their place of caring for me, their place of wanting to give me the best. They knew that I wasn't used to sitting on the floor, so they wanted me to sit at a table. So often, I would sit at this table, alone, separated. There would be a celebration happening in the nunnery, and it would be separate from where I was at my little table. My days became very simple and very lonely. It was different than being in intensive practice where, you know, when I'm in intensive practice, that loneliness doesn't exist for me in that place. There's just such a feeling of connection. But, it, you know, it wasn't that I practiced hour after hour. I would have times of practice, and then someone would come and knock on my door and want to take me somewhere where I never knew because I couldn't ask them. I'd never know how long I'd be gone for. There was also meal times when, you know, the times I wasn't alone, I would be sitting there and I would be learning how to say spoon and fork in Burmese. And then I'd go back to my room and I'd wonder, what does this have to do with my liberation? At the time, it was just not what I had expected not what I wanted, not, you know, nothing was unfolding the way I thought it should be. This continued for a couple of months. And then it came time to leave. Some friends had driven me to the airport, and I was sitting in the airport, reflecting on my time there. And in looking back, there was no sense of, oh, well, that was pretty interesting, or wow, really got something from that. No, it was just this puzzlement in my mind. What was that about? Completely bewildered. And at the same time as I was feeling this, I looked up, and there was something quite unusual for Burma, which is so often like stepping back in time. But there was something unusual in that there was this huge video screen, and on it was playing MTV. And right at the moment that I looked up, there came a Sarah McLaughlin clip. And one of the signs, uh, lines in the song is about building in a mystery. When I heard the line from the song, I heard it as living in the mystery. And it penetrated. It It broke through all of my needing to know what this was about it broke through so that I found myself sitting in a place of trust, a place of ease, just sitting with the mystery of life, not having a clue, but being totally at peace with it. And when we sit at peace in this deep mystery of life, This is where the grace of the Dharma is known. Let's sit for a moment.
May all beings come to know the deep ease of trust. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.